Welcome to the Future of Agriculture podcast, the show that explores the people, companies, and ideas that are shaping the future of agribusiness. Innovation, resourcefulness, and collaboration are essential for feeding a growing population, and we believe the agriculture industry is up for the challenge. Please welcome your host, Tim Hammerich. Hey, thanks so much for downloading this episode of the Future of Agriculture podcast. My name is Tim Hammerich. I am an agribusiness recruiter. So if you know anybody looking to hire or be hired in the business of agriculture, I would love to talk to you. Uh, send me an email, tim at aggrad.com. This show is a proud part of the Farm and Rural Ag Network. So if ag podcasts and blogs and vlogs are your jam, head over to farmruralag.com and check out some other really good ones over there. This is now our third episode in the Accelerating Ag Tech series. In this series, we're looking at exciting ag tech startups and the accelerator programs that have helped make them successful. We kicked this off two weeks ago with Sarah Nolette of Agthentic, and then last week you heard from Impact Vision and the Terra Accelerator. We have another exciting startup on the show here today, solving an interesting problem in agriculture, perhaps one that you haven't even really thought about. Plastics have been in the news quite a bit lately. You've maybe heard of the straw laws that are going into effect in places like California, where it's illegal to actually serve straws in restaurants, and I'm not sure all the nuances of the law. But anyway, plastics are coming to the forefront of our thinking about the impact that they have and how long it takes for them to uh, degrade And once we throw them away. Well, agriculture uses a lot of plastics, everything from gardening containers to mulch films to packaging materials to grain tarps. And a lot of these are just used once for one season and thrown away. Well, our two guests on the show today are Tony Bova and Jeff Beagle. They are the co-founders of Mobius. You may have heard of them in the past as Grow Bioplastics. They are now going under the name Mobius. And what they have is a biodegradable plastic material that can be used for all sorts of different agricultural uses. Really interesting stuff. This is an aspect of agriculture that you wouldn't immediately think of, I, I think, but something that is very, very important when it comes to sustainability and can have a big impact on a somewhat hidden part of the value chain. I'm going to drop you into this interview where Jeff Beagle is explaining the origin of Mobius. When, when we were still in grad school, kind of building this company and Tony was working on the research during his PhD, we were taking business classes um, and one of the approaches that they, that, that they talk about is to talk to different customers and try to find a market where your product fits. And that's what they call product market fit. So when, when we started the company, I think the very first thing we pitched was actually 3D printing, which is something that we're still interested in. But the, the product market fit wasn't really there. It wasn't really the, the type of impact we wanted to make. So we started looking broader to other industries. And I, I think the, the real inspiration came, Tony was driving in East Tennessee where we're based and saw a farm with acres and acres of plastic mulch film on the ground. And the simple question of what is all this plastic on the farm kind of just inspired the approach of looking at agriculture. And since then, all, all of the different plastic products that are used in agriculture from mulch film, which blocks weeds and retains moisture, to gardening containers, to even the packaging used for food products have really been a target area for us. 
uh, help everyone understand the problem with with kind of the way the materials that all of this this multifilm gardening containers uh, food packaging uh, you know what's what's the big problem uh, so I think that the largest problem overall is that the majority of these materials are currently made from petroleum-based plastics uh, like polyethylene. It's generally the same type of plastic that you would see a milk jug or a grocery bag or a trash bag made out of. And while plastics, I think, are a wonderful invention, and I probably wouldn't have spent the last five years studying them if they were, they've got this kind of double-edged sword of being super durable, but also they last forever. And when we start using these low cost, but really, really durable materials for things that are generally considered single use, uh, we end up with a problem at the end of what do we do with them afterwards. So for applications like the plastic mulch films, for example, a farmer would put down, you know, up to 160 pounds of this plastic in this thin film form per acre if they're growing something like strawberries. And for one year, they'll use that film. They'll get the benefits of you know, weed prevention and moisture retention. They'll have really clean strawberries they can sell on the market. But at the end of the season, they have to tear all that plastic up. And that ends up being, one, a, a, a large kind of waste accumulation that they have to pay money to send it to a landfill. And it's also a labor problem, which is you know pretty pressing these days in the agriculture industry because the majority of these plastics have to be removed by hand. Um, there's lots of little bits that get left behind and uh, altogether it, it just creates a burden that ends up majorly in the landfill and, um, you know, is costing farmers money. And typically I, I would guess with these, it's kind of a one-time use. So like a uh, annually they would replace it. Is that right? That's right. So if, if we're using the plastic mulch film example, again, after the harvests are over, the plastics have to be picked up and they're generally put in a large container and sent to a landfill. Uh, they can't necessarily be recycled because they're usually full of dirt and often contaminated with other ag chemicals, maybe pesticides or something like that. Um, and when the farmers go to plant the next year, they don't always plant in the exact same spot. They still have to till their soils and turn everything, apply new fertilizer and compost. Uh, and then prep the soil for the following year. And then that's when they'll put down brand new plastic uh, and then plant again. And the, the process of putting down the plastic is really efficient. We've, we've seen it on a few farms where the plastic just comes in a single roll and there's a, basically you pull this piece of equipment behind a tractor and it'll roll out the plastic and kind of in the dirt carve out like a little groove um, and lay down the plastic all nice and then all the farmers have to do is kind of poke a hole in the top of the film and put in the uh, the seedling or the seeds on the plant. So it's it's pretty efficient. It just um, then when you're going to, I guess, rip all the plastic up at the end, d depending on the material, it might rip a lot. And then it's you're, you're putting down, in some cases, tons of plastic on the soil. Yeah. And I, I don't know. I, so I just from my narrow experience, I, I used to run grain elevators. And I don't know if you've ever seen this, but th there are millions, if not billions of bushels of grain that get put under tarps every year. I don't know if that would be an application for you down the road, but yeah, we would just cut up those tarps every year. And I, I kept thinking there's got to be something we could do with all this leftover tarp and they just never came up with a good solution. Um, but, but tell me about your guys' solution. I don't know if, I don't know if grain tarps are in your future, but um, what's different about yours, um, both in material and usability for the user? Sure. So the materials that we're developing, it's a, a biodegradable and compostable plastic. 
And what differentiates us in a, a few different ways. One, the traditional petroleum-based plastics like the polyethylene that I mentioned, uh, they, they don't biodegrade in the soil. It, and biodegradation, just for a, a high-level clarification, means that when they're in the soil, like in, in the dirt, kind of exposed to typical temperatures and rain, there are bacteria and fungi in the soil that can eat up certain things. So the reason that leaves fall and then eventually degrade is because there are bacteria and fungi that can eat those things. There's, there's really none that can eat plastic that exists in the soil. Hmm. So to develop a biodegradable plastic, you need to use materials that those bacteria and fungi have a way to actually eat. So it's like food for them. So what we do is we have a technology where we're able to combine a material called lignin. Lignin is actually a plant-based material. It uh, accounts for about 20 to 30% of the weight of every tree that you see. Uh, and it's actually the waste product of the paper and biofuel industry. Um, lignin, if you're looking at a tree, is kind of the glue that holds the tree together to let it grow tall. I kind of like to equate it as to the the concrete as to rebar, if you're building a building, lignin is the concrete, cellulose fibers are the rebar. Uh, the paper mills want to strip that lignin out so they can have this nice, nice bright white fiber. Or if it's a biofuel company, they want to get access to that cellulose to make fuels. Hmm. Um, the lignin, they, they generally burn it and we're actually able to use it. And so what we do is we take that material and we combine it with other biodegradable or compostable plastics that exist right now. Uh, and are able to deliver a, an end product that's actually affordable for farmers and, and you know people within the agriculture to use as a replacement for petroleum-based plastics that they can simply leave in the soil at the end of their growing season, if it's a, a mulch film, for example, and then run that plastic over with their, their tilling or if they've got like a set of disc arrows, they can um, incorporate that into the soil where it'll break down naturally into water, carbon dioxide, and compost. And one of the really exciting things that, um, again, why we're interested in agriculture is some of the research coming out of the university in Tennessee looking at biodegradable mulch films is they're finding that biodegradable mulch films are actually improving soil health for the microbes and improving kind of nutrient retention in the soil. So not only are our materials biodegradable, which cuts down on the labor costs and disposal costs for farmers. But over time, it could potentially improve their overall soil health, which we're very excited about. How do you make sure that they don't biodegrade too early? Wouldn't that be a concern? That is. So there are some other biodegradable plastic mulch film products on the market now. Um, a lot of them are made from uh, material that's generally derived from a corn or a potato starch. Uh, and while they do work, they, they have that same problem where they usually degrade too early. And it's from one of two factors. One of them is just that starch, if you can imagine, if you, you know, took a potato starch and you put it into the ground like a French fry or something like that, there's plenty of things that know how to eat that and they're going to eat it up pretty quickly. Um, so there's a, a way to have to slow the bacteria and microbes in the soil from working on that. Uh, the other one is that a lot of those plastics are really susceptible to actual breakdown from the sun. So as the sun beats on these plastics all day long, they generally start to break apart. Um, it's from natural weathering processes. And 
to do that, what we are actually working on is a way by using lignin, uh, which, which in one hand is actually a, a UV inhibitor. It can kind of block some of that activity from the sun. We can control some of this breakdown process. And then also lignin itself is actually a slower to degrade material. Um, it degrades on a much longer time scale than something like cellulose or starch. And so by leveraging those two things together, we can actually kind of tune how long these plastics would take to break down so that they're not breaking down too fast for, for some of these applications. Where does one get lignin? <laughs> there's, there's not really like a, you know, lignin listed on eBay. So tell, tell me about kind of the, how you source your materials and kind of how you make sure that uh, you're sustainable even when it comes to, you know, even when it comes to that part. Sure. So the, the primary producers of lignin are actually paper mills. So if you're talking about in the U.S., companies like Domtar or Georgia Pacific, uh, Westrock, Weyerhaeuser, these are all ones that you may see their names on a, you know, a ream of paper at the office supply store or maybe on a cardboard box or something like that. Uh, lignin is the waste product in their process that they're pulling off. And while they burn that for energy, usually uh, they get about five cents per pound, depending on energy prices in their region. They've always wanted to find a way to have a higher value application for that. So for a company like us, there's a few things we can do. One is we simply reach out and see if they have a person who's in charge of any sort of lignin research and development. Um, some of those people exist at some of the companies, some of them don't, so it, it gets a little more challenging. Uh, but another great thing that's been useful is a few years ago, the U.S. Department of Agriculture issued a call for a survey in the U.S. asking for companies who were producing lignin uh, as part of their process and were interested in selling it and kind of put this list together knowing that the USDA had future goals of developing a more robust bioeconomy, so making things from plant-based resources rather than uh, fossil resources. Uh, and this huge list was compiled of lignin producers. So we had a big list to kind of work from and people who are actually kind of a lignin eBay, but, you know, very, very limited in source um, and to go through and contact them. And that's generally how we've been getting all of our materials so far. I'm always curious, uh, you know, in, in an event like this where obviously it's a it's a really, really smart idea to, hey, maybe we can use lignin and we can have a proprietary process where we uh, have a product that biodegrades just under the right circumstances so that, you know, for the biodegradable tarps or mulching films or containers. Uh, so now I, I would bet, and you tell me, but you all are probably at the point where you're trying to produce this uh, and scale up your production of it. How did you go about that part of things, like finding out who is going to make this for you, or do you have your own manufacturing facility? So that's that's the point where we're at right now uh, in kind of the lifetime of our company is is figuring just that out. So in the beginning, we were making all the materials in the lab uh, out here in Lenore City, Tennessee, um, and we were making really small amounts, maybe you know a couple ounces at a time just to understand how to come up with the different formulations and which ones worked from a, you know, physical properties to the actual degradation. Uh, now we're getting ready to start that scale up process. And what we've done is in part, we had some funding that we were fortunate to get at the beginning of this year from the national science foundation through one of their small business innovation research grants, mm -hmm. the, the SBIR program. And that actually gave us the ability to reach out to, not only more of the lignin providers, but also 
different plastic compounders. Um, so these are companies that generally take raw plastic materials and add things to them like color or other kind of additives. And the scale-up process for our technology actually uses the same equipment that those companies have on site. We don't need these big chemical reactors that have all sorts of kind of hazardous solvents. So by reaching out to them, we've been communicating with a number, some that are right here in Tennessee, uh, one actually that read a small article about us from the university and reached out to us uh, and are finding partners that can help us with this scale up process that have both the expertise and the equipment to do so. Very cool. Very cool. So uh, as you scale up, who, who are the ideal customers? I know you, you mentioned kind of three different market segments in mulch film, uh, gardening containers and food packaging. Being a young company, where are you focusing your efforts first? That's a fairly complicated question just because of the way that the plastics industry works. So I guess I can dig a little bit deeper into that. We're actually a or will be a business to business company where we're taking in the raw materials like lignin and other biopolymers. And the product we're actually making is a pelletized plastic resin. And the way we explain that is it's the currency of the plastic industry. It's You can imagine just having sprinkles that are made from our material. And the way the plastics industry now is the pelletized resin is sold to companies with injection molding equipment or um, different uh, pieces of equipment that can make films or plastic bottles. And they essentially melt the pelletized resin into a liquid and then use that to make the film or a bottle. So where we kind of fit into the supply chain is we are making the pelletized resin and selling it to companies like the ones making the mulch film or gardening containers now. The really cool thing about our, I guess, office, which is out here in East Tennessee, is it's an old farmhouse that is on 30 acres of farmland. So we're able to use that land to test our materials in real world conditions. But we also have a lab, which is based in an old garage that we can do kind of more controlled testing studies on the biodegradability as well. Another thing to add about the customers is our focus is not only to be able to produce these pelletized plastic materials, um, but for us to know that the end customer, so if it's someone that is, say, a, a greenhouse or a nursery manager that may have a biodegradable container that they want to have um, on the market that they feel that they can actually generate some extra value from for whoever their customers are, or if it's a farmer that wants this potential you know, mulch film, we're going all the way to those end users and bringing them in right now for pilot studies. So at the beginning of next year, the plan is that in a few of these applications, like the mulch films and the containers, we'll have uh, either greenhouses or nurseries or actual farms kind of signed up to participate in the pilots with these materials. And then if we can show that entire kind of value chain of our raw material suppliers, our technology, the manufacturers that make whatever those plastic converted products are, and then the end users, that tells like a really clean story. And that's what we'll be able to hopefully start building the business on and selling into those spaces. I imagine as you guys were uh, talking to investors or are talking to investors, one thing that probably comes up is, boy, do you really want to compete in a market for a product that 
people are just used to throwing away. You know what I mean? Can, can you can you carve enough margin out of a product that the the alternative is something they know they're just going to use once and toss anyway? Like, you know, do you really want to be in sort of like the paper cup, paper plate market? How have you all wrestled with that or have you and, and kind of what have you come up with there? We've thought a lot about this. This is actually a, a really good question. And I think it's one of the earliest things that we tackled. When Jeff mentioned earlier that we had looked at these different markets as opportunities, one was not only to be able to find you know, places where the value proposition was a good product market fit in terms of having a renewable material, um, but a big thing was uh, kind of twofold. One was cost and then the other was does the idea of having something that can degrade in the soil or in compost actually bring any value to that end customer? So in something like a, you know, like a shampoo bottle per se, I don't think that we're there yet as a society to have the infrastructure to know how to dispose of all of the different plastics, including compostable ones. Hmm. Um, people are used to just trash or recycling. But if we're talking about on the farm, these people are dealing with compost and things uh, going into the soil on a daily basis. And to them, if there's a potential labor savings or time savings or, or money really is the confluence of those two things uh, by using something that eliminates another step in their process, that's actually a value add. And what we found is that we feel that there's actually additional value we deliver beyond just competing against price. And, and that gives us some room for margin um, for some value added applications the other big part of that too is that the plastics in general, um, I don't think that it'll be super soon that we're going to be able to compete directly on price for commodity-based plastics because they are just so cheap. Um, but when we're comparing to people who have already made the decision to use a, a, you know, a renewable material or some other biodegradable or compostable plastic, those materials are generally two to three times the price of you know, the really cheap commodity ones. And by using a waste material in our process that is really low cost, we can actually be much more cost competitive and you know, lower price than some of the existing bioplastics on the market now. And that's actually a value that some of these current customers who are already using those are really looking for. Great. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, you, you all chose to get involved with uh, Village Capital. As, as everyone listening knows, this is part of a series called Accelerating Ag Tech about companies who... I went through some sort of accelerator program. Can, can you tell us about your decision to, uh, to pursue that opportunity and how that has uh, transformed your business in any way? Yeah. So our, our company has been around for about two years at this point, a little over two years. And in that time, we've actually participated in a number of accelerators and pitch competitions to kind of raise capital if we can. And then also to just kind of test our business model. I mean, we, we really wanted to just learn from all of these opportunities to improve our business model. As a team with Tony and I, we're always trying to learn from new mentors, from experts in the industry. Um, and so we actually met um, a few years ago, uh, Ross, um, who is the, one of the co-founders of Village Capital, and we've always been very inspired by Ross and everyone else at Village Capital. Their, their thesis is to invest in impact areas like agriculture, education, healthcare, financial technology um, around the world. 
And the way they do that is they bring in a cohort of startups. For us, it was 12 companies, including ourselves. And once you're in the program, Village Capital actually takes their hands off the process and trains all of the teams to be investors. And so we were trained to be investors over the last three months and actually peer select the top two companies from our group who end up getting investment. And and through that whole process, we were paired with mentors and investors throughout the agricultural industry. Um, The first workshop was in Chicago. So we got paired with some uh, local experts in the kind of Midwest area. We had a meeting in the Research Triangle in North Carolina, which had its its own expertise in different areas of um, agriculture. And then the final workshop, which was actually last week in San Francisco, was to kind of pair us with um, investors who are really interested in the ag tech space. So that that's kind of why we wanted to get into Village Capital. And I, I got to say, it's been one of the hardest but most worthwhile learning experiences we've had on this entrepreneurial journey. And were the other 11 companies in your cohort, or was this all in all sort of ag cohort or did this span all of the impact areas? Each program that they launch is for a specific target area. So all of the, all of the companies that we were working with were in food and agriculture was this program. But I know, I, I think even this week or next week, they're launching um, like an education program. So all of the companies in that cohort will be focused on education. Where did you guys feel you got stretched the most as far as uh, really kind of battle-proofing your business? I would say that the biggest part, and we have to give a lot of credit to the Village Capital uh, team for helping us with this, was the stage that we were at and the team that we had on board. So in the beginning, it was just Jeff and myself, uh, two of us with a big idea and you know, some advisors from the University of Tennessee and Oak Ridge National Lab and a few others that we had met through this kind of circuit of business plan competitions and some smaller accelerators. Um, All of that got us to the point where we were starting at the Village Capital Accelerator, which was we have the business up and running. We've raised a little bit of money. We've got the formulations starting to be identified for the, the best performing plastics that we're trying to make. But then the next big hurdles were who specifically do we need to bring on board to actually get us to that next step of going from making a few ounces to a few hundred pounds a day or a few thousand pounds a day? And then what are the relationships that we need uh, to do that to show that there's actually pull from the end customers? So I think that um, while we had some good ideas, I think your, your term of battle tested is actually really good because we kind of got pulled through the ringer by our peers uh, and also the mentors to really let us understand what exactly and who exactly we need kind of on our team to, to do that. And uh, we're really happy with the results. And one of the things that I'm sure Village Capital knows is a direct result of their program. But for us, uh, we kind of stumbled upon it as we reflected on the program. But be- because we are responsible for making the investment on behalf of Village Capital, it's kind of our responsibility to make sure that we're doing proper due diligence on all of the other companies, which means just learning how to ask really good questions, how to dig into the nitty gritty details. And if you see a risk, 
How do you ask questions about how to mitigate it? And so the next logical step of doing that to other companies is to do it to your own company. So I think over the last three months, Tony and I have gotten really good at evaluating ourselves and just kind of being self-aware of what are our strengths and weaknesses and acknowledge that the two of us will not be able to build this company entirely on our own. So what other people or resources do we need to kind of hit those milestones and mitigate those risks? And as you look kind of forward here, what what's uh, a top of mind as far as immediate strategic priorities? And then also what excites you about the future of Mobius? So some of the big priorities that we have now, um, they, they came out of the result of a lot of the conversations that we had at the beginning of this year under the grant that we got from the National Science Foundation have been conversations we've had since we've been in the Village Capital Accelerator. And that's really around the idea that the next big milestone for us is after we can show that we can produce a bunch of this material at once, we need to go do demonstrations in real world applications. We need to do pilots on farms and in greenhouses and nurseries. And so fortunately for us, some of the engagements that we've had through those two processes has brought us to some bigger companies and bigger kind of end customers that have in their own internal kind of you know gun sites, if you will, the idea that they can be using or producing materials for this really sustainable material space. And then we're working with them right now to actually see if we can get them to help fund the development and kind of execution of these pilots. That does kind of two things for us. One, it takes a little bit of the burden off of money that we're trying to raise from investors uh, so that they're not paying for the benefit that someone else might receive. But also, I think it's the true validation is if somebody really wants what you have, that they're willing to give you a dollar for it rather than just say it out loud. Um, that's that's really kind of the thumbs up that we need to know to move forward and that we're on the right track. What, what about uh, long-term vision? What, what excites you about the impact you can have? So I, I think that the biggest thing that we're focused on now that we're really excited about is that the plastics industry within agriculture alone uh, is like $12.5 billion. And while we won't certainly be able to address all of the single-use plastics there, I don't think a week goes by that we don't learn about some new interesting application or idea. We're actually getting really great conversations with people that we've met where they're bringing us ideas uh, for things that we haven't necessarily thought of. So I think part of that really goes back to that self-awareness and learning part. So there's a, a essentially a longer-term product roadmap unfolding ahead of us that's really heavily driven by these customer interactions. So we're not just being the engineer sitting in the garage and building something that we hope somebody wants. You know, people are telling us what they want to see. And then beyond that, back to kind of the genesis of the company and the name and everything, we're really excited that there is a future possibility where we may find these other organic waste resources uh, and continue to develop technologies to make new plastics out of them or other chemicals or materials and, and things like that that are um, possibly complementary to what we're doing now or complementary to the same customers that we're, we're working with. Great. Well, both Tony and Jeff, thank you guys very much for being on the show. I think this is uh, an extremely important yet often overlooked part of the value chain. I love being able to highlight stories like this because 
the packaging is something that we just don't think about very much, or, or like you said, these mulch films or containers. And I think it has a huge impact uh, on the future of agriculture, even though it may happen a little bit behind the scenes. Uh, but very cool. If somebody wants to learn more about Mobius, where should we direct them? They can find our website at www.mobius.co. Uh, we also have a Facebook Twitter and LinkedIn pages that we'd love if people are interested in following. If anybody wants to contact us, there's a there's a way to reach out to us directly uh, through our website. And we'd be happy to, to chat up with anyone who's interested in what we're working on and, and have a good conversation like this one. Excellent. Guys, thank you so much. This has been a lot of fun. Thank you, Tim. Tim, thanks so much for the opportunity. This has been great. Big thank you to both Tony and Jeff for being on the show. If there are two guys that can make plastics sound interesting and exciting, those are the two guys. I really enjoyed that, and I hope you did too. Thank you to all of you who have left an iTunes rating and review for this show. It really does mean a lot. I know I've gotten out of the habit of reading those on this show, and I want to get back into that, but I did just want to take a moment here today to say thank you very much for those of you who've taken the 30 seconds to hop on iTunes and leave us a rating and review. It really does help other people find the show and validate the content that you're hearing here. So if you're enjoying what you're hearing and you haven't done so yet, I, I would love it if you'd uh, hop on iTunes and leave us a rating and review. Also, tune into the follow-up Fridays. We're getting to feature the accelerators that are mentioned. In this case, it's Village Capital. We're going to have them on a future follow-up Friday where you can learn about those programs. So if you're entrepreneurial and interested in agriculture, um, make sure you're checking that out because it could be a valuable resource for you in the future. Love to hear your feedback on follow-up Friday as well if you want to tweet me at Tim Hamrich. We will be back with more Accelerating Ag Tech. Thank you as always for tuning in. Thank you for listening to the Future of Agriculture podcast with Tim Hammerich. Visit futureofag.com, that's futureofagag.com today to get connected into careers in the agriculture industry. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week.